Hello and welcome to Jared Radio. My name is Jesse Guppin and I'll be your host. This podcast is aimed to advance education through the study of the practice of law and legal rights. for you, a group of individuals talking about systemic racism and structural institutional racism, what exists in the North or the near North, Thunder Bay and beyond. What's also interesting about this from another perspective is the question of how do we address these deep systemic problems. You'll hear most analysis from a legal perspective on the decision to create and undertake a OIPRD, which is a police oversight body, to look into abuses by the Thunder Bay Police Services and Police Services Board in Thunder Bay. And you'll also hear about a process where the law firm of Julian Faulkner, including Megan Daniel, who is one of the panelists that you'll hear, to undertake a coroner's inquest, which first started as an inquiry into one young person's death and expanded into an inquiry into five. As you'll hear in part, but is not the focus of this conversation, led to a suspension of the jury roles in Thunder Bay because they were unable to include Indigenous people on the roles, therefore rendering them unequal. Finally, you'll hear from a great mind, Tanya Talaga, who is an Anishinaabek woman who gave the Massey Lecture and has written several important works, such as Seven Fallen Feathers. So just to be clear, we will begin by hearing Jerry McNeely, who is the former head of the OIPRD. We will proceed to Megan Daniel, an associate at Faulkner Law. We will then hear from Julian Faulkner and end the presentation with remarks by Tanya Talaga. I'm excited to present this material to you, and I think you'll find it illuminating. Enjoy. So now we know, given how long these are going on, we know that the review into policing uh, in Thunder Bay was long overdue and finally got done. So we'll turn it to Mr. McNeely to speak about that. Jerry's fine. Uh, thank you and, and thanks, Tanner, for to lead in. Uh, I'll give you an overview. Firstly, my, my report, it's online at OIPRD, so I have to make a disclaimer. I'm not speaking in that capacity anymore. Uh, my tenure was uh, terminated at the end of March, uh, probably because I can speak now, I'm free, uh, probably has something to do with some of the things I said in here. In any event, uh, I'm okay with that because my life is way better for doing what I've done. So in order to give you a bit of an understanding of the review I did on the Bay, uh, ended with this reporter, I, I need to talk about why I decided a systemic review was necessary. And I want to talk a little bit about the process and highlight uh, certain aspects uh, from my report. 
the real thing that I, I want to tell you is that, so you understand the systemic review uh, in this uh, situation is because in my previous job, I oversaw complaints against police in Ontario. And when you see a pattern of behavior that's more than one often complaint, the authority was there to do a review. It's like an inquiry, uh, but without the Robochi evidence or evidence in the court uh, setting. And, and so I've done the G20 report. I just recently, prior to my uh, end of my tenure, uh, released uh, strip searches. Those are all systemic reviews. It takes a bigger look and a more in-depth look into situations where uh, police uh, behavior is not appropriate. In Thunder Bay, I'm sure you know, and if you read Tanya's book, uh, you'll get a better insight to it. About 13% of the population identifies as Indigenous. Part of that 13% represents indigenous people who were born and raised in Thunder Bay and others uh, who come into Thunder Bay, as Tanya has indicated, primarily for educational purposes, but also for medical purposes and uh, employment and uh, other social services that's not available in their home communities. Since the early 1990s, though, concerns have been raised about issues in the indigenous community in Thunder Bay by indigenous communities, by the leaders of the indigenous communities in regards to police investigations into deaths of indigenous people and especially young people and, and women. Numerous efforts were made to persuade uh, you know, the, the governments of the day to take a better look and a more in-depth look into these issues, into these failings. It was failing uh, the indigenous uh, population uh, peoples in Thunder Bay and the surrounding areas without success. So committees were formed, uh, some by the indigenous groups themselves, some uh, with, within the city to address these issues, but none of them really delved into exactly what the root causes of some of these issues. And, and, and so during the, the period uh, 2000-2011, as Tanya has indicated, seven young people died, uh, seven young people from First Nations communities around Thunder Bay died attending school in Thunder Bay. Five of them were found in the rivers uh, surrounding Thunder Bay. And again, these deaths uh, obviously uh, caused intense calls from the indigenous community and leaders for action and questions were being asked, but answers were not given. So uh, it's with that backdrop that uh, I became involved. Uh, we received complaints from uh, indigenous uh, communities, indigenous individuals, Thunder Bay, over the period of time that I set up the OIPRD, we received complaints from young people, and many of these complaints oftentimes will be withdrawn. Why? After it's filed and after we're about to do some investigations, we'll get a call saying I'm withdrawing it, and it's primarily because of reprisal. Primarily in regards to the young people that the police officers will approach them, they know who they are. Once the complaint is filed, I have to send a copy to the chief of police. I have to send a copy that will go to the officer involved. So they know who the complainant is. And that, that would cause some reprisals to take place. I convened numerous meetings uh, with the then chief of police in Thunder Bay and other and indigenous leaders to, to try to uh, create a stakeholder group to facilitate discussions around uh, this area, the area of policing, policing indigenous community in a not uh, perfect way. I failed in, in a number of those initiatives because the committees formed, we had one meeting and it was left up to police chief primarily uh, to motivate others to continue
attended these meetings and they did not take place. In, 19, in uh, 2015, an indigenous man, and uh, Stacy DeBungi from Rainy River First Nations uh, was found dead in the McIntyre River. Now, Mr. Falconer will uh, speak more about that, so I will not go into it, but that was the genesis of my report. I received a complaint. Julian was representing uh, the Rainy River First Nations. I received a, rep uh, a complaint from them, a conduct issue in regards to the behavior of, uh, and interactions of individual officers, but also in regards to requesting that I do a systemic review, take a bigger look at the issues in Thunder Bay, and I did. I took it up and uh, I uh, announced my systemic review. And hence you have my report uh, titled uh, Broken Trust Indigenous People and the Thunder Bay Police Services. So what did I do? We analyzed 37 sudden deaths involving indigenous uh, people, men and women, and, uh, and also we looked at the seven uh, deaths of uh, the youth from the inquest that took place. We also looked at cases that uh, involved uh, some of the matters of the national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women and girls were looking at. We interviewed numerous people, over 200 people I interviewed with my team, had meetings, and, and uh, to try to get to the bottom of this. We had interactions with the chief coroner for Ontario, the chief forensic pathologist, and we interviewed leaders from the indigenous communities. And uh, also uh, we interviewed uh, police officers and others. Uh, so we held about 80 meetings. One of the, the most important meetings for me was a community meeting I held asking the public to come tell me uh, and share with me their concerns. What surprised me coming out of that meeting is we expected maybe 40 people. We had a room full of people, over 200 people attended that and had great discussions about the issues in Thunder Bay. I made 44 recommendations and, and, and trying to do justice to the time, I have to read my report, get all those recommendations. But one I want to tell you about was the most important recommendation I think I made and also finding I made is I talked about racism. And, but I have to tell you a quick story. We interviewed many, many police officers in Thunder Bay. And one interview stands out with me. I, I can't name the officer because I made an undertaking not to name people in my report. But here's what this officer said to me as a staff sergeant in charge of a platoon or a team of police officers. I asked him a question. So why is it that when you see an indigenous person, you have a different mentality in how you go and interact? And his response to me was this. When I see Indian, or when I see a native person, I see three things. That they're living off the government, they're drunks, and they're up no good. And then I said to him, it's not in my report. I couldn't put it in my report. It was too, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Explosive. Too explosive and inflammatory. I didn't put it in there. But I can tell you the story now, because then I said to him, well, what if you see someone in a suit and, and they happen to, to strike as being an indigenous person and say, I see the same thing. It didn't matter who you were, as long as you looked native to him, he had his view of you. But I talked about racism and I found out there was systemic racism at an institutional level in Thunder Bay. 
And I found that because the officers were clearly didn't know what they needed to know when they were doing the investigations. They clearly investigated a man involved in an indigenous person completely different. I found that from my review of 37 cases. And we looked at many other cases, but I highlighted 37 of them. And it, clearly there was racial stereotyping uh, that was taking place in Thunder Bay. Others will refer to it, but I will leave it there. I will hopefully be able to answer some questions and give you some more feedback. But I have to tell you that when I stated that there was institutional racism at an institutional level, I think the people who were in attendance were surprised, one, but they were also pleased. And I think it's made a, a big difference and lifted a burden on of the, uh, the citizens, the indigenous community in Thunder Bay, and now they're speaking out and, and they're taking action. And I'm so ecstatic about it and so proud of my small role in helping that uh, come to fruition. I think a lot of people here might feel that there are certain things that are so obvious to some of us and yet it requires reports and investigations and someone acting in a position of somewhat the relative power to actually spell it out in order to perhaps shake things up a little bit. So it, with that context, we're going to move to uh, Megan Daniels who will speak about the inquest specifically and being a lawyer in Thunder Bay. I am so grateful to be here and for all of you to be spending your time here in this panel. I'm going to use my time to bring out some of the back, background to this report. So we're kind of moving back in time. And then I also want to take a moment to look forward as to some potential responses we could make that weren't the response that was made. To this end, I believe we can't have a discussion about what happened in Thunder Bay without bringing out explicitly the terms on which we are talking. And we're talking about this problem in Western terms. We're talking about a Western legal response. And this conversation in our law offices amongst settlers in Toronto is different than what I heard when I was in Thunder Bay amongst Indigenous people. They were talking about their own legal system and the response that could have been made within their own worldview, within their own commitments, within their own values. So I want to bring that out because to move towards an understanding of those perspectives, we have to shift our worldview. We have to be willing to shift our worldview and see another worldview existing. The first thing I discovered when I moved to Thunder Bay, which was in 2015, which I'm not sure a lot of people knew about because I was still getting invites to things in Toronto for years after I moved there, which made me feel good, but also I missed all of you greatly. I came just in time to begin the inquest and I figured out that there were gonna be two inquests that were happening. One was amongst the First Nations parties. I was representing in Julian's office, Nan, with other lawyers from Julian's office. And the First Nations parties, more than Nan were there, were focusing on the sort of setup to systemic danger. They weren't looking so much, they did want to know those individual facts that led to the individual losses. But what they wanted to talk about was the policy choices, the chronic underfunding, all those things that remove the possibility of educating kids in their community and creating those unsafe conditions that waited for them in the city. Whereas the police, the city, the feds, Ontario, they really wanted to focus on those immediate losses, those individual facts that preceded each death. There were commonalities between those individual losses that were compelling to everybody involved. There's an eerie amount of detail in common. All of the kids who drowned were Indigenous males between 15 and 18. They all went missing for a short period of time or sometimes months before being recovered in the water and no one saw them enter the water. In no case did anybody have any evidence as to how they came to be in the water. 
rather that what we had was assumptions that were based on stereotypes and attitudes. In every case, despite this lack of evidence, officials quickly assumed an accident. And so what became the effort in the inquest amongst the First Nations parties was to shift the focus between the commonalities of facts amongst those losses to the commonalities of actions and attitudes on the part of the police. So we would look at things, Tanya mentioned the slow responses to a missing person report. Jethro, six days before any activity on the file whatsoever. That wasn't an isolated thing. Kern Strang, an 18-year-old boy who went missing, two days passed between being reported and any activity happening on that file. In every case, there was an early determination of accident. And by early, I mean before any sometimes or a thorough investigation happened. In the case of Kern, he was last seen uh, passed out or asleep on a riverbank, fully dressed, four meters, or sorry, 10 feet back from the shore. He was found four meters into the water, face down, no shirt, no socks, his pants were undone, he was missing one shoe, and he had injuries on both of his shins. And there was no investigation done after his body was found, none whatsoever. Amongst the facts of these youth, and what we were talking about in their going missing and trying to discover what had happened to them, we were getting an overwhelming evidence um, that this city was simply not safe for Indigenous kids. So Arlene Tate, who was a counselor at DFC, the school they attended, except for Jordan, he went to a different school. She told the kids that she boarded, that the city wasn't safe for them, and that people would try to hurt them. Uh, Colleen McCreary, the nurse, told the people at the inquest that the kids faced racism every single day when they left the school. Sky Kakagamic was a student who testified, and she, I quote her directly, because she said, to them they think we're just savages. Maybe they think it's funny to pick on something, like how some people think it's funny to pick on a dog and torture it. To them they see us like that, something not someone. She told us that one of Robin's last experiences of racism was on the night she died. She had fast food and racial slurs hurled at her on the way to the bus terminal. Robin was not one of the students who drowned, but was one of the students who was subject to the inquest. Ricky Strang, who was Reggie Bushy's brother, told us he was warned not to walk around late at night because some people are racist. And we asked, we asked him how that's made him feel. He said he felt disappointed but then showed kindness in saying that people in Thunder Bay probably just don't understand where the kids are coming from. So the troubling evidence about this racism that came from the kids told us they got used to it. It just became something that was part of the climate, that's where they lived, that's what they dealt with. And then we had, during this inquest, stories compounding stories compounding stories. So we had Barbara Kentner, who passed away in Thunder Bay, killed in a random act of violence, a trailer hitch was thrown at her and she later succumbed to her injuries. Then we had the Statistics Canada report that came out that said hate incidents targeting Indigenous people accounted for 29% of all anti-Aboriginal hate crimes. And around this time, the hashtag, this is Thunder Bay, started appearing on Facebook and Twitter. And it was personal stories, people saying, this happened to me, this is Thunder Bay. And this is a short period of time I'm talking about. Two years is how long I ended up living there. So then I started realizing when reading the media that there was actually two Thunder Bays. There's two inquests happening in two Thunder Bays. There was a Thunder Bay of Indigenous people in crisis, fearing safety for their children at every moment that they left the house. And then there was a Thunder Bay of settler calm. In July of 2017, the acting police chief said that it was business as usual for the police service. And she denied that Indigenous people had a crisis of confidence in the police, which I thought was pretty amazing. 
that she knew that and she was going to proclaim it amongst uh, the response. City Hall started putting forth a hashtag, I choose Thunder Bay, which was a place for positive stories about how wonderful the city was and intended to silence those negative reputations that were deserved at that time. And Mayor Hobbs said it wasn't the job of police to babysit these children, a remark of shocking insensitivity in my opinion. The complaint was made, there's this incredible report and there's others on this panel that can discuss the strategy and the success and the struggle and the work that was done actually better than I can. One thing, I, as I said at the beginning, I want to expand our discussion about what do we do when the legal issues that we work on in this community face Indigenous people. Because us amongst the left, we try very hard to go from personal violence and individual violence to a systemic violence, a group violence. And I think we do this pretty well at this point. And it's necessary to make that move, but I'm going to tell you that, in my opinion, when violence is done to Indigenous persons, it's often done on three levels. You have a personal violence, an individual violence, you have a group violence, that stamping out of culture, that assimilative policies. But you have a third violence, which is to the worldview. And I don't want to end this conversation without explaining what I mean by that and seeing if it can become part of the law union conversation. People in NAN talk about their law as a way of life. And to be honest, when I first started hearing about this and went down the road that ended up in the masters about indigenous legal traditions, when they said law was a way of life, I thought they were sort of admitting that law was sort of loosey-goosey everything, it was everywhere all at once, it was inarticulable, it was cultural, and I actually couldn't hear what they were saying about it as law. I could only hear an assertion that law existed, but I couldn't understand what they meant. And this isn't just a NAN-specific observation. Leroy Littlebear has said that the philosophy, values, and customs in Aboriginal societies are the law. Law is not something that's separate, it's the culture, and the culture is the law. Having to vastly oversimplify with the time I have left, the idea that law permeates life is a statement about its ubiquity in Indigenous lives and its cultural embeddedness. So I'm telling you that law can only be understood from its cultural commitments, its own worldview, and I think that the cultural commitment underlying indigenous law is in fact life. So one of the quotes that drove this home to me was a Facebook status update from a great friend of mine, Sam Achney Benescom. And he said, I don't want to talk about death and dying and hate anymore. I want to talk about life. And law as a way of life became not just a statement, but an assertion of a substantive commitment that the legal system is in fact focused on the support and the protection of life. It is holistically and positively committed to harmony and the responsibility to live in balance with creation. It is, in fact, about life. It is not a way of life. It is about the furtherance of life. I would say that we are seeing here Western law is about loss. I don't know if you've experienced the same things or felt the same things I've felt. Perhaps it's the focus of my work in Thunder Bay. But I see so prominent that lawsuits are for compensable damages. Inquests are to prevent a similar death. There is no right, no right which the court recognizes without a remedy. We are triggered in reaction as lawyers. And this is heartbreaking to me. And so in a very, very fast what to do, I think we should use the tactics available in Canadian law on behalf of Indigenous communities with an honest acknowledgement that what we are doing is winning settler-valued remedies from the thief of power. I think we have to forefront that. I think we have to learn Indigenous legal traditions because I've just given you the barest tiniest thing to say that there is a law, there is a system, it has a logic, it has a substantive commitment, it has its own values, there is much to learn there. 
And when we learn them, we might consider the way they can be worked into our practice, while being conscious that if we do that work of translation, we may pervert things if we are not terribly careful. And if we put in this work of understanding, I think that's what it means to be a treaty person. And I ask, what if? What if we had started doing this work a long time ago? Because we can bring all those tools and tactics in Canadian law to remedy this loss. But what if those students from NAN were alive right now? What if they were the artists and the police officers and the political leaders? How would they have changed their families? How would they have changed their communities? And what if they'd grown up in their own legal system, which I think is circled around the support of their healthy life, protecting their life, instead of growing up in our legal system, which was focused on preventing their needless death? And that's all I have to say. Thank you, Megan. We're obviously moving really fast through issues that we could spend many, many hours and months learning and discussing. Now we're going to move to Julian, who will speak about what we can do as lawyers, for those of us here who are lawyers, but the process of uh, being a law firm and serving Indigenous communities in Thunder Bay. And also, I think Julian will hopefully address what it's like now in Thunder Bay in terms of the relations and also working as a lawyer. First of all, I want to emphasize that I am truly appreciative of where we are and I want to acknowledge that we are on the traditional territories of the Mississauga Credit and the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, Anishinaabeg people. And I, I, I want to say that the panel members that I'm honored to be with here, it's close to impossible to humble me, that, that's a fact if anybody knows me, but if it were possible, today would be the day. You need to understand that the report that Jerry created, right, and I've been at it for 30 years, I'm really old, right, uh, and the only report that rivals this report is the Cole Gittins report from the 1990s on systemic racism. This is the single most important report on racism in Canada that I know of. And I don't overstate it, so read it. I know no one will, that's the way life is. Try anyway, because it's important. Secondly, I want to say that Tanya Talega and her book has brought Thunder Bay home to people across Canada. I routinely run into people who the book comes up with. People who've never been to Thunder Bay. And I think as an Anishinaabeg woman, she should be uh, extremely proud that she's told the story. And I don't think there's any possible way that you, she could better serve her uh, occupation, her people, or this country. So I, I want to acknowledge that as well. My colleague, Megan Daniel, makes me very proud. She's been with me our firm for years. She's not with me, she's with our firm. And it's humble number one. Yeah. And I want to say that it makes me very proud to watch how she's evolved. She actually ran the Thunder Bay office for many years. She uprooted herself and went north. And many of us kept going back and forth and Megan landed there. And now she's uprooted herself again and she's in Montreal. But she still stays with us, right? For personal reasons this time. And I just want to say that I listened to her and her wisdom is extraordinary. What is fascinating about pieces of the work that you're hearing about, the important report by Jerry, the, uh, the inquest that Meglin uh, was co-counsel on, all of these things are sort of part of a journey that, uh, to be honest, 
uh, our firm has been honored to act for Indigenous people on. Our role and, and how professional services can be delivered in the North is the theme I intend to speak to for a few minutes, because that's all I have. But I want to start by saying this, that it's exactly as our honorable moderator mentioned, things, some things are so obvious, but honestly, they're not that obvious. I sit in the South and I see many of the same things. Let me try the unspoken in the room, the big elephant around the law unit, Murray Klippenstein. He's actually advocating measures that will dismantle equity for racialized licensees in this province, and everybody's terrified to talk about it because it's Murray. That's happening right here. Something so obvious, it's nowhere on the law union agenda. And I know you guys work hard and this developed recently, but I say that because there's many things that are obvious, but no one talks about. I represent DeFonte Miller beaten with a metal rod by a police officer in Durham. Pretty obvious. And it goes on and on. So my experience is not that there's something going on in Thunder Bay that's incredibly unique to Thunder Bay. There's something going on in Canada. And we have different ways of it revealing itself. But let's go to Thunder Bay for a minute. The reason you see that title is that everything's in stages. So what really happened, first of all, is that the Grand Chief of NAN, he was then Deputy Grand Chief, as Megan pointed out, Alvin Fiddler and Tanya speaks about him too, he'd had enough. Children were disappearing and nothing was being done. We were honored to be instructed to write a letter to the Chief Coroner all the way back 11 years ago in September 2008 citing the deaths that had occurred up to that point, there were five deaths, and pushing and advocating for an inquest. There was great resistance. One inquest was ordered, not in respect of all the deaths. And in the middle of that one inquest, we discovered, of course, there were no Indigenous people on the jury. That exploded into the crisis people are familiar with in the North when all the truth came out about the exclusion of Indigenous people from juries. That led to the Yakabuchi Inquiry that we pushed for because that's where the trail took us on the racism against indigenous people in the north. And that trail, part of that trail took us and took the Grand Chief and, and took the families to the inquest. And in the middle of the inquest, another death happens, the death of Stacy DeBungi. And the death of Stacy DeBungi was investigated in precisely the same shoddy, racist way as all the seven youth deaths that we were cross-examining officers in the courtroom at the same time that they committed these sins. And so the chief of Rainy River, First Nations, Jim Leonard, and his people had enough, and we were honored to be retained. And we asked Jerry to do a systemic review, and you've heard about that. Now what was interesting is his interim report was met. His interim report was met with the headline in the Chronicle Journal. There's no crisis in Thunder Bay and it's business as usual, says the Chief of Police. His final report, next slide, thanks. His final report was met by the Chief of Police talking about how expensive it is. Both Jerry's report and the report of Senator Sinclair, the other investigation we asked for of the Thunder Bay Police Board, they were met with the budget concerns prompting the title, Racism is an Expensive Exercise. Next slide, please. Today, in Thunder Bay, 
Mayor Morrow, and I am talking about in the last two weeks, is decrying the fact that all these systemic reports have got it wrong. Bill Morrow's the mayor. What he ignores is the dismal ranking of the Thunder, city of Thunder Bay as the location for the highest level of hate crimes in Canada. You say things are obvious though. You say things are obvious, but I want you to know, next on the list is Southern Ontario, including Peterborough, Golden Horseshoe Valley, things that are so obvious. Next slide, please. I want you to know that on the Thunder Bay Police Board today, the provincial appointee is a man by the name of John Sear, who has made a point of supporting, in writing and publicly, Senator Bayak's speech about the benefits of residential schools. Yay! The journey to put in place on behalf of clients who fought these fights, because it's not the lawyers, it's the clients. The journey is about not sitting in the south and having conferences. The journey is about going north, though I appreciate this particular slide shows Falcon Air going, unfortunately, south. <laughs> much, much like this speech. But the journey, and that's the nav screen in our plane, the journey has been about setting up offices in Toronto, now Manitoulin, and in Thunder Bay. The journey is about conveying to the clients that you're not a voice on a phone, that you will go to them. I have had the honor of putting over 400 hours in the air this year in a 182. Megan was the first lawyer to take her life take her life in hand, and she ended up my best navigator for years. What I want to emphasize is that the journey is truly about going and seeing for yourself. That what we experienced through the seven youth inquest, next slide, thanks. What we experienced through the investigation of Stacey DeBungy, and now what we experience on behalf of leadership across Northern Ontario in declaring a policing crisis has left a legacy of accountability. The mayor doesn't get to say these things without being called out. The member of the police services board, while the word is the minister is going to be revoking his appointment in a matter of days. Things aren't happening in secret anymore in Thunder Bay. It is much more about the Indigenous leadership who have had enough and who are able to call officials to account. It's much more about the Anishinaabeg woman who wrote the brilliant book than it is about the lawyers, but I want to emphasize it's an absolute honour to do this work. The personal sacrifice of being on the road, the transplant, to Thunder Bay by Megan, now Kristen Ordnick of our office has taken over for Megan, and she spends all of her time there. But what I want to emphasize is it's incredibly rewarding, and I wouldn't change a thing. So thank you. Thank you. So we'll turn now to Tan back to Tanya. I'll be... Uh slightly brief because I think it's important that you guys get a chance to ask um, the panelists questions here. But I just, again, I'm just in awe of all the work that everyone's done to open up this issue in the North. And if we didn't have partners, I don't know where we'd be. 
that's the thing, right? I mean, um, I know that Alvin Fiddler, the Grand Chief of Nan now, he first met you, Julian, when uh, you were cross-examining Mike Harris at the Ipawash Inquiry. And um, Alvin just happened to be there because he was testifying about what, uh, I think he was testifying something about indigenous life and land rights. And so um, he heard you and then he thought to himself, I need to get to know him. So he went up to you and asked you for help and said, this is what we're facing in the North. Because truth be told, it's the situation in Thunder Bay has been like that for 150 years. That somebody said on the panel, I can't remember who it was, said that, um, I think it was you, Megan, people are just used to this. This is how it is here. This is how we're treated. And that is very true. Because you should know that um, there have been more children who've died in wars since Jordan Labas was found um, in May 2011. Josiah Vague, Tammy Kiyash, there's also been the death of Brendan Munias. And before 2000, we had many, many children die in the water. Young men as well. So this is something that's been happening in the North for a long period of time, and nobody was paying attention. And you know, one of the things that's so simple, but it's so important is um, for all of us to listen, to listen to each other. You know, I went up to Thunder Bay from Toronto when I was working at the Star to get that story on the federal election, and I was sitting across from a grand chief was telling, they were saying to me, why aren't you doing another story? Why aren't you doing this? And I'm so glad that I listened to him and I put that manic sort of Toronto self aside. And you have to, you know. We have been in this country, well, we are this country. We are Turtle Islands. We've been here for thousands and thousands of years. And we did not ask for all of these things to be imposed on us. We did not ask for the Indian Act. We did not ask for residential schools to take away all of our children and to leave us in the crisis that we're facing today, including a massive justice crisis. And Megan, you were absolutely right. I mean, there's so much Indigenous knowledge that can be learned from our way of life and how that translates into law and into fairness. And one of the things, too, that um, I'm glad you touched on this, about how when everyone was fighting for an inquest, when Julian, when you wrote that first letter on behalf of um, Alvin Fiddler to get an inquest started into five deaths of the kids, an inquest into one was granted. An inquest into Reggie Bushy's death was granted. 15 years old, his body was found on November 1st, 2007. The province refused to look at all the other issues. And that's when you did the judicial look at, well, hey, you know, who's on the jury too? Because it was Reggie Bushy's mom that said, who's an incredible woman. She barely speaks any English whatsoever. She speaks Ujibwe. And she stood up and she said, why? Aren't the other children represented in this inquest? And who is going to sit on the jury? Who is going to make decisions as to what happened to my son? And those questions have reverberated all across this country. You see it with Colton Bushy. You know, the report that came out, the Yakabushi report, was so important because Indigenous people in the throughout the North have been completely disenfranchised from the justice system because they are not property owners. And so they were not put on a roll or a list of people to be called into juries. I'm not going to go on about the incarceration of our people all over, all over this country. Um, but uh, things are, things are getting better. I mean that that letter that you sent 
did lead to looking at the juries in the North. It did lead to eventually an inquest into the seven kids. It led to people opening their eyes. It led to that incredible OYPRD report, the work by Jerry McNeely. It led to people listening to us. It led to our partners in the South listening to us. What Julian's not telling you is that when he came to Thunder Bay, he faced incredible resistance from the legal community in the North. He, like, there are lawyers in Thunder Bay. They just didn't take us as clients, ever. Julian did. Megan did. I can't begin to tell you what that's like to have two different Thunder Bays, and that's very true. I mean, I wrote about it in the book as well. There's a red face and there's a white face in Thunder Bay, and that's how it's been for such a long period of time. And you are right, you know, it, um, there are, um, you, we see the same issues when it comes to policing and justice all through the Golden Horseshoe. But we see those same issues in all of our communities. We see it in Saskatoon. We see it in Vancouver. We see it all over in Winnipeg. You know, all of our people are facing the same things. And it's just been ignored for so, so long. I want to say too that, um, sort of bring it up to here and now with the OIPRD report, which is so incredibly important because that report looked at the fact that nine of those cases, Indigenous death cases over the last 30 years, need to be reopened and reinvestigated by an outside police force, a police force that is not having issues of systemic racism. Or Jade, thank you, thank you, yes, yes. And you should know that of the nine cases, uh, four of them are the seven fallen brothers. That's so wildly important because you know, all of our families want justice as well. And we don't want to be forgotten. We honor all of our kids and our people have been forgotten and left out of the justice system for so, so long. The OIPRD report was not the only report that was done there was a report also done that looked into the um, Thunder Bay um, Police Board, because you know police boards police the police, and that report was done by Maurice Sinclair, who was the former chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. And I urge you very much, you know, to uh, not just to read the OIPRD report, but also read Maurice Sinclair's report. And if that doesn't tell you too about the scope of the issue and the problems that are in Thunder Bay, that you have the former chair of the TRC coming in to investigate what the hell is going on there, I don't know what else will show you how bad it is. Because it is a spiral down. This is not just an issue though with police and with racism, right? It's, a, it's an issue that goes far deeper. It's an issue about equity. It's an issue about civil rights in this country and the fact that we do have two different classes of people in this country. It all comes together. Justice Sinclair made, um, he made a bunch of recommendations as well, one of which was to abolish the police board and to bring in a new police board. And part of the reason why he did that too was because up until about, oh my goodness, about a year before he started looking into everything, after the inquest had happened, the Thunder Bay Police Board realized they had no Indigenous representation on the board whatsoever. So then they said, okay, well, we'll give you a seat, but you can only watch. You have no vote. Remarkable. It's remarkable. We really so, get you to the back benches. That's right, that's right. And so, Murray comes in, abolishes the board, changes it up. The mayor of Thunder Bay is still on the police board because mayors sit on police boards. And just this week, 
my chief, Fort William First Nations chief, Peter Collins, actually wrote a letter calling for the mayor's resignation from the police board because the mayor refuses to identify systemic racism as an issue in Thunder Bay. Again, we just had a mayor in Thunder Bay, Keith Hobbs, who also refused to look racism in the face, really, really look it in the face and say, this is what's happened here. It's two steps forward, 10 steps backwards sometimes. It's, um, it's constantly a fight, but we do better with allies, and we do better when we're talking about things, and we're finally talking about what's going on in Thunder Bay, finally. And I think it's gonna to be to the betterment of the entire country. We have a few minutes left, and I think it's really important to get questions and input from uh, the audience. We'll go way to the back. While we wait for the mic, what uh, Tanya didn't say that was that the mayor referred to uh, Senator St. Clair and myself as those two guys <laughs> who came into town and talk about racism and making Thunder Bay look as if it's really bad. So, that's right. Yeah, that's I mean, true. so I would live with those two words, those two guys. And there's a history to those guys because uh, Mayor Hobbs, who was the mayor before, previous president of the Toronto of the Thunder Bay Police Association, became the mayor. Well, Mayor Hobbs, when the issues of race came to a head in Thunder Bay with the inquest, publicly made statements that ended up on the front page of the Chronicle Journal that racism isn't the problem. In Thunder Bay, it's these high-priced Toronto lawyers. <laughs> now, he's not the mayor anymore because he got charged criminally in a... Where is he hired a high-priced Toronto lawyer? <laughs> Next. My question is to the whole panel. I was told by a crisis worker up north in the presence of the Deputy Grand Chief of Man that the reason that so many of the people who are missing are young men between the ages of 15 to 19 is because you're at the stage where your organs are growing and that there's a black market for the theft. And secondly, I was told by Dawn Harvard that there's a great amount of sexual slavery going on with the traffic that's happening with Great Lake freighters that fly Lake Superior where they take indigenous young women and keep them as slaves and then throw them overboard because Lake Superior does not give up its debt due to the way the currents run. So I was wondering if you could address those two issues because to me, these are major. Is there anyone here who might? Well, I, I can tell you that specifically, but uh, um, you know what I didn't say in my comments is that uh, I interviewed, uh, as well as my team, uh, hundreds of people and uh, in many of those sessions uh, we had a cry session because of the stories that were being told and surely what you have indicated are stories we heard over and over uh, that uh, uh, but they, they have never been investigated as far as I'm aware and it was outside my bailiwick to look at them but I have to tell you that I heard exactly what you heard and uh, if that doesn't you know cause great concern nothing else will. I, I do want to speak to the, the issue of the role of homicide uh, or indeed kidnapping. First of all, I think the inquiry uh, into, the, uh, into the deaths of uh, uh, respective murdered Indigenous women and girls, uh, you know, it, it's equally applicable. And the inquiry's conclusions, which are coming out 
in, in a week are, are each equally applicable to the Thunder Bay area. I do want you to know that while I don't know anything about this notion of organ theft, and to be honest, it, um, as it relates to the seven deaths, it doesn't add up because bodies were found and it's just not consistent with what we found. But I do want to emphasize this, that what started as a theory that I agreed to investigate but didn't honestly thought might be fanciful that these deaths people were deliberately being thrown in the river, I can tell you now publicly, and I've said it before, I think some of the deaths are due to people being thrown in the river. We have evidence, accounts, narratives of people who uh, survived efforts to throw them in the river. Uh, I, I want to also be clear that you should just think of it as, you know, there's that old adage about life on the prairies, you know, where two, two cowboys get bored and they're going to go flip cows, right? It's identical for the Friday, late Friday night or late Saturday night around the McIntyre. That let's go throw some drunk Indians in the river. You have uh, people that are very vulnerable uh, uh, partying near the water, potentially not being in a condition to defend themselves, and uh, very dangerous racists go down there to toss First Nations people in the water. And there's no doubt in my mind that at least some of these deaths are attributable to that, if that's all. I, I think it's more than intentional. I think it's that it's clearly that, uh, as I as I said in my report, they don't know what they don't know, and they don't care what they don't know. Primarily, it's like, oh, it's just another native person. Uh, and I gave you that little example about how that senior officer felt about native people, and he he manages people, he supervises people, and my question to him is. So do you tell this to the people who report? He said, definitely. That's how we must look at this situation. So I think it's more than, I don't want to say it's on purpose. I want to say that it's incompetent. And I want to say it's just what you call racism. They have a belief, a view of an indigenous person and they do not merit the same type of investigations. I didn't have a lot of cases to do a comparison, but I did a little bit of a comparison, and my comparison showed that if, you, if, you, if you're native, if you're indigenous, you get one type of investigation, and if you're not, if you're Anglo-Saxon, you get a different type of investigation. So I, I think it's some deliberateness, in my view. I also think that the Thunder Bay uh, police are simply backwards in terms of their serious case uh, investigation skills, in particular homicide, which is backwards. If you read the report, you'll find out just uh, how grossly under-resourced they are where they're supposed to be. And that's because absent different uh, social problems in the city of Thunder Bay, there was a time where it was a pretty light place to police. And then they never grew, even though the city grew in large numbers. And then they blame it on the indigenous population. And instead of becoming better resource to keep everybody safe, they just let certain people die. And I do not ascribe to the theory that there's some wall between the bad people who are potentially killing people in the Thunder Bay Police. It's equally likely that some Thunder Bay Police officers are implicated. I have no difficulty believing or accepting that. Not because I have a bias against police officers. I have seen on the ground the behavior of some Thunder Bay police officers and is despicable. Now, others are very honorable people. I think the chief of police is simply incapable of managing their officers. Uh, you have a, a woman who openly 
beat, that is a police officer, Thunder Bay police officer, who openly beat a young woman on a stretcher, right? Because she spat. And the bottom line is the chief of police has yet to come out against that conduct in any real kind of way. I'm going to talk about how dangerous spitting is. I have a question about how, um, is there, if you've had experiences with um, media outlets that dump down the whole like scenario, different situations that you people went through constantly, and if you've had like debates with these media outlets, try to be progressive with, to, towards the community and informing them and like being on the same page, because I know Facebook automatically does that people writing their, um, what's going on with them, but also if you've had like, Debates with like media outlets that are don't like watering down what's going on and fight progressive people like you, you folks and have that situation and clarity about that. I could probably speak to that. Um, for a long time, no one wanted to tell their stories. I probably know that. You know, like I've been a journalist at the Star since 1995, and for a long time, people weren't editors didn't want to hear the stories, right? We had newsrooms all across this country that are full of people that don't reflect what our society looks like whatsoever. Many of the reporters in the newsrooms are, I'm the only person who's indigenous at the Toronto Star. And I say there are very, very few of us in newspapers. Negan Sinclair is in Winnipeg. In the mainstream, it's, yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. Uh, CBC, thankfully, has the Indigenous unit. They have a bunch of people that are great Indigenous reporters, like Duncan McHugh, who's led the way there on um, trying to sort of teach everyone what it's like to report in Indigenous communities, on our communities, and what stories are. Because for a long time, a lot of people think our stories have to do with chiefs that rip off everybody in the, on the reserve or just stories about drunken Indians killing themselves. That was constantly the refrain that I heard for such a long period of time. And it took many things for that to change. And it's still changing and in need of change. I mean, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, it wasn't until after that report came out about six years ago now, I'm saying. It wasn't until Idle No More started. It wasn't until the rise of social media started. So you've had Indigenous people speaking up and so easily on our phones and through Facebook and connecting with each other and saying, hey, you know what, this isn't cool. This isn't how we see the world. This is how we see the world and standing up for things. APTN has been an incredible resource, you know, so it's like there are more of us out there pushing that story. But it always is a fight and it will continue to be a fight. We need to tell our stories. Yeah, and I don't want to besmirch any news, uh, newspaper. <laughs> I, you know, I, I do want to say that uh, I don't think, uh, and, and, and so I'm not a media person, so I'm going to say that I don't think that the Chronicle Journal in Thunder Bay uh, gives uh, full reporting into the issues. It's very selective. I think they, it's somewhat one-sided in the approach to things. At least that's what I found. You know, and I, I gave, I had an editorial interview with the uh, the other newspaper. And and I, I I challenged the editor in chief then to do some better reporting and more reporting in Thunder Bay. I'm pleased to say that they have opened a, a bureau there and and try to focus more on issues involving the the indigenous community uh, in Thunder Bay. Uh, so hopefully we'll get more of those stories. Hopefully we'll get more a better understanding of what is really really taking place in. in, in Thunder Bay and it wouldn't be hidden from us 
anymore through uh, that newspaper, through Time News newspaper, and maybe the Chronicle Journal will switch its reporting. So the Chronicle Journal will not switch its reporting. It's a rag. It's just a rag. The day after uh, uh, Jerry issued his report, he's much more temperate than I am. The day after Jerry issued his report on the front of the Chronicle Journal was, and I'm sorry it's not in my PowerPoint, I should have put it in. There you saw the Chief of Police and uh, Grand Chief Alvin Fiddler on the front of Jerry there. And the headline was, Force Deemed Racist. <laughs> <laughs> Deemed racist, right? Anyway, they have no quality control, and for those who don't take the problem seriously, like it just cast it off as a rag, they're wrong. They actually, they are very effective in, in uh, influencing the minds and hearts of uh, local Thunder Bay folks, and something needs to be done. They're just a horrendous piece of media. To Jerry McCauley, I was a prosecutor for a long time, I can't get over the fact that the Crown Attorney's Office in Thunder Bay, over a long period of years, missing and murdered people, I never had senior command and would say, What the hell is going on here? So, my question is Did the inquiry look into that at all? The interviews with the Crown. Thank you for everyone. I'm, I'm wondering what is more or man's view on what should happen. I heard a comment made that the police may be under-resourced. Are people calling for this racist police to be more resourced? Or is, like, well, what, how should we move forward? The first question I can answer quickly is that uh, we try to interview crime attorneys in Thunder Bay. Uh, there's a dictator from Toronto that they wouldn't let them speak with us. Uh, we did uh, quietly, off the record, uh, speak to a couple of them, and they basically told us that uh, they know what's going on, uh, but you know, I live here, I gotta work here, and so I do what I can. Uh, when, when the case is really egregious and it's bad, I pull it, and uh, if not, I run the case. In regards to what the, so I hope that answers you. So we couldn't get a lot of, in regards to, to what the police should do, I recommended that uh, they, they do a lot of training. I recommended that they refocus themselves. I recommended some particular steps that the service should take uh, uh, to, to teach them. I recommended uh, how they should go about hiring police officers. I recommended that they need to test them. And uh, some of those things are being implemented slowly, but there are a lot of things to do. My view, on my own, is not speaking from my report, but speaking as a lawyer who has a concern about this type of stuff, is that they should disband the senior uh, group of police officers and start afresh. Uh, they really need to start and have a different look because the, the systemic racism is so bad in Thunder Bay that only starting afresh will be able to eradicate that view. I can tell you as a legal counsel for NAN, um, the Grand Chief is perfectly capable of speaking for himself as well as the rest of the leadership, but as legal counsel, it's my view that uh, the Thunder Bay uh, Police Service is on a very short, short window of survival. Uh, the Kenora Police Service was disbanded uh, uh, when they couldn't get it and wouldn't get it, and uh, I think the Indigenous leadership will likely reach a stage, though they can speak for themselves, when they simply call for the disbandment of the Thunder Bay Police if they continue not to get it. There's one point that people should ask themselves a question. 
It would have been during the Liberal government that the Ministry of the Attorney General would have instructed its crowns not to speak to Jerry with his systemic review. That's absolutely unconscionable, and people should ask questions about that. How could it advance the public interest for Crown attorneys to stonewall a, a statutorily mandated uh, systemic review of this nature? It's, it's astounding. I would just say that um, I don't speak for Nan whatsoever. Julian does more as her counsel. Um, but I, I've heard Alvin Fiddler say two years. I give him two years. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to stop here. Uh, I want to say that, well, we, we all know that there's a lot more to discuss, there's a lot more to learn. We haven't even addressed things like um, Indigenous people in the criminal justice system, in terms of uh, the overrepresentation in our jails, the fact that our justice system itself is, um, is not helpful not only to Indigenous people, but really um, arguably to all of us, given that the adversarial perspective that we take. We haven't talked about what does it really mean to learn indigenous values and traditions and how we incorporate it, how we teach it to our children, how we continue to fail to teach it, other than making acknowledgments in schools and, and touching on the topic from time to time. We, we have only just started this journey and only taken a couple of steps and there's so much further to go. Uh, of having children and the challenges of, of isolation that come with that when you are a person truly cares about the world and wants to make a difference. Uh, so I'm glad you're here. And uh, finally, I want to thank uh, Jerry McNeely for your outstanding work for the past 12 years with the OIPRD, with the limitations that were placed on you. Uh, you've achieved quite a lot. And, and uh, you should know as well that right after this uh, last report on Thunder Bay, uh, the OIPRD uh, released a report on uh, police abuse of power in strip searches. So if you haven't read that, that's another uh, report that's certainly worth reading. And I want to thank you guys for being here, and I think I'm going to turn it to Howard. He's going to get the last word. Just, uh, just a quick pitch. If you enjoyed this panel, give some thought to joining our working group on policing soft racial profiling. I think you really enjoyed it, and we have a lot to do with this board government. I'd ask you to join with me in expressing our profound appreciation to all members Many of you made real efforts to be here today. So you've been tuned into Jured, hearing these comments and thoughts. And something you may know is that there is a connection between Jured and the Law Union of Ontario, both being founded in the 1970s and working towards a goal of social betterment. This panel was organized by the Stop Racial Profiling Committee of the Law Union. And you may also know, but maybe don't, that the Law Union has separately an anti-colonization committee. If you're interested in either of those two committees, please email lawunionofontario at gmail.com. This is a podcast of the Jured Foundation. You can look us up, Jured Foundation, J-U-R-E-D Foundation. 
www.wordpress.com to see some of our past work. You can subscribe on any podcast-related program. You can even donate to the Jared Foundation if you like our work and support what we are up to. Thank you so much. We appreciate your listenership and hope you have an excellent day. Bye now.